So my name is Tessa. I'm CEO and co-founder of Zendit. I'm the first female co-founder who's brought a company to unicorn status in Indonesia. Women leaders in tech are uncommon and, and it's, it's especially true in fintech, right? How did you manage to break into this space? How did you manage to achieve what you achieved? So my story was a little bit strange in that... Um... Tessa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Perhaps we could kick off the podcast by you telling the audience a little bit about who you are and what you've done. Sure. Uh, so my name is Tessa. I'm CEO and co-founder of Zendit. Zendit is the stripe of Southeast Asia. So what we want to do is we want to change and improve the way payments work in places like Indonesia, Philippines, and other parts of Southeast Asia. We want to make payments easy. We want to make that that experience of digital payments as seamless as it is in places like um, the United States. Uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm homegrown, born and based in Indonesia. Did go overseas a little bit for, for university, for my education. Um, came back to Indonesia because I thought that was really the place where I could make a huge difference. Started out in investment banking and then um, co-founded Zendit after that. And now uh, Zendit obviously is, you know, for those who you don't know, we're a unicorn and, you know, I'm the first female co-founder who's brought a company to unicorn status in Indonesia. Extremely proud of that to pave the way for other women. Yeah, that's in a nutshell about me. That's an incredible achievement and um, you should be very proud. We want to know how you did it. I think that's the, the, the main point of today's podcast. We want to understand your, your mindset, your actual process itself, any um, lucky moments, any unlucky moments, any, anything that we can learn. So hopefully we're going to get into that. But I just wanted to highlight that women, women leaders in tech are uncommon. And, and it's, it's especially true in fintech, right? Where I was just reading a stat that only 7% of leadership positions uh, in the in in the fintech space are women. So, how did you manage to break in? Let's say break into this space. How did you manage to achieve what you've achieved? Yeah. So I think you spoke a little bit about being lucky. I was actually, I think, quite fortunate to be kind of in the right place um, at the right time. First things first was um, when I was uh, in private equity. I didn't have a finance background. Um, I happened to have come back home when, um, you know, some of the private equity funds um, just started sprouting up in Indonesia. Um, I was able, uh, fortunate enough to be accepted to be an analyst in one of the biggest homegrown funds at the time. And they were willing to train me because obviously, uh, you know, there weren't so many people to tap into uh, in this type of industry uh, at the time. Uh, thereafter, you know, obviously um, started Zendit. Uh, met my co-founder there. And again, I think it was, again, the right time to have that opportunity. Uh, really, when Zendit first started, FinTech was starting out in Indonesia. Before that, you know, the only startup that you can find probably was e-commerce players. Um, and when I took the leap, a lot of FinTech starts sprouting up, including Zendit. And I thought, you know, that mission to be able to build payment, digital infrastructure was something I can get really get behind. And yeah, that's how I got here today. Now, looking at your history, you had a really good job before you took the leap and, and did your own business. Was it a difficult leap to make or did it just happen easily? Yeah, so my story was a little bit strange in that um, I think at the time uh, my father passed away. So there was, there was a big event that happened in life. And I actually remembered Googling and, and Google saying you shouldn't be making these types of choices when you've had such a big change in your life. 
but I sort of felt at that time reflecting back that, um, you know, I, I I was in a job that was very cushy, but what was next for me was to be a partner, and I didn't really see that. So private equity in Southeast Asia, what we were investing in were traditional businesses. They were all started by entrepreneurs, but mostly, to be frank, old men. And I didn't see myself being a partner and selling to to these entrepreneurs, you know, because a lot of the deal was happening uh, during dinners, karaoke, and you know, I couldn't do that as a woman. Um, so that was when I thought, okay, I need I need to change. I need to be able to do something that makes a big impact. I need to do it in a place where I can be comfortable with how I work and how things are run and to create something that's just going to be super awesome for, for the country. And, and you mentioned earlier you met your co-founder. Was it love at first sight? Was it, was it an easy uh, partnership to construct? How did it play out? Yeah, I think um, so. At the time, I was um, actually getting quite a few offers to to join a bunch of fintech companies, and I sort of pinged some of my friends. One of them, uh, one of my friends who ended up being one of our first customers, actually, I spoke to him about, "Hey, what's a tech scene like?" Because he was he was there first, and um, he introduced me to Moses, who's uh, the other co-founder. Um, and I thought at the time, I was like, hey, this is a, a person I can get behind. So he's the CEO. Um, he's actually also my boss. And so I thought, okay, this is someone I can really work with. This is an idea that's really amazing that can really change things, the way things are run in Southeast Asia. And yeah, you can say it was kind of first love or first work, first work love at first sight or something of the sort. That's a bit of a tongue twister. But we had a really good chemistry. Yeah. We, we thought that we had the same framework with the way we approached things. We had that same passion. And, um, you know, I, I thought this was someone that I could really rally behind and work with for a very, very long time to do something really cool together. Was there a difficult discussion or was it a straightforward discussion around things like equity and how job roles would play out? I mean, I know a lot of co-founders get caught out on this. So I'm trying to teach my audience a little bit about perhaps best practice when it comes to structuring that sort of stuff. But what was that like for you, that process? Yeah, so my situation was a little bit different in that the other three co-founders met first. So they'd all gone in a room and the story is, you know, they locked themselves in a room and decided um, on these really hard conversations, how many percent and, and of equity and who does what. And sort of said, you know what, we're going to make a pact. We're going to talk about this and we'll never do that again um, after we leave the room. I came in a little bit later. So so I did have to, I think, push a little bit more uh, in terms of, hey, I, I want to be, you know, part of the conversation. I want to be at the table. Uh, but I felt at the time um, that, you know, I had... And I think I think a lot of women experience this a lot, where a lot of females at work, they're afraid to ask for a raise. They're afraid to ask for what they think they're worth. And I learned that from my previous jobs. I learned that by being in private equity, that there were all sorts of people who were getting promoted uh, before me. And the minute I left, that was when I was getting offered you know, pay raises and stuff. And I never asked before because I thought if I did a good job, someone will notice and someone will stand up for me. So when I came in uh, to being part of Zendit, I said, I'm going to 
I'm going to understand that I have value. I'm going to, I'm going to try to fight for that value. I'm going to be very reasonable. Of course, we were very small then, you know, we were working out of a house. It wasn't a great, magnificent company that it is today. It was just a bunch of people, you know, building fun stuff together, um, out of like the, the Asia version of the garage of Silicon Valley. Um, so again, it was about, standing up, understanding my value, uh, what my value is or my worth and, and sitting together and being really fair, you know, understanding how many, yeah, understanding percentages, understanding how much I should be paid and, and my contribution, obviously that's most important to the company. Definitely think there's always, I think, don't ask, don't get right. So maybe the audience could take that for a moment. I think you've got to stand up for yourself a little bit. Uh, like like you're saying, I, I completely uh, agree and understand it. When you um, when you decided to say yes, um, what, was it an easy decision, or did you still agonise over it? And so so I think this is probably a trait of a lot of entrepreneurs is that um, you do a bunch of crazy, uh, very um, risky decisions that others don't. Obviously, it's still calculated, uh, but I think we tend to to be more ready to take risks. Um, actually, I met Moses, uh, and within three days, I had signed. I had signed for Zendit. I decided to join, and I think within the month, uh, I left my job and and yeah, joined Zendit. And um, the rest is history. I've personally been very lucky and had the time to spend in Asia. Um, my wife is actually from. Uh, China, and so um, I've I've gone. To, I've got to understand the culture, and I don't want to say this is always true, but there is a big thing in Asia where you work for a brand that everybody knows. Did you have a lot of pressure from your family? Was were they very supportive? Did they teach you that risk is good? I mean, what was your family life like? Yeah, I think look um, that that opportunity cost in doing entrepreneurship in Asia is very low, right? A lot for a lot of people, because if you're leaving your job, a lot of times not, not very cushy or, or very nice. So people do tend to want to push, uh, to be entrepreneurs. But for me, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs, whether it's my father, my mother, my, my grandma, my aunts, um, a lot of them really had to do businesses to make, uh, to make life work. It wasn't an option for them. There were no other options to go work elsewhere. So that's why they went out and, and started their own businesses. Um, I thought it was something really, really exciting, really admirable. And that's why I really wanted to, to take the dive myself, right? Uh, and and one thing to note here, Simon, Zendit was not my first business. I actually had a few other small side businesses before I took the leap. A, a lot of people hear about the glamorous success stories. They don't understand that beforehand, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs would have had a lot of failed businesses before. Um, I, for one, experienced that. I had actually started a really small cafe um, with a really great slogan, but but the food was extremely, extremely bad. And I took a lot of learning from that and that had to close down. Um, Moses had a Thai business beforehand. Our other co-founders also had other businesses. Um, so I think for all of you entrepreneurs out there, um, you won't always succeed the first time around, but every time you learn something, uh, and don't worry for every success story, there are a lot of people who've fallen down before and get back up to build something cool like Zendit after. I think there's such an important message, and, and thank you for highlighting you know, the whole concept of people should fail and experience failure. It's a, it's a, it's a good experience to fail. And, and I think a lot of people that don't take risk perhaps don't, are listening to this and don't want to start their own business because they might fail 
perhaps forget the point you're highlighting, which is you're probably successful today because those things failed. Right? You needed it. That's definitely very true. Yeah. And and you know, um you you can calculate all the things you want, anticipate everything you want when you're starting a business, but you're always going to be faced with with different challenges that you would never even think about. If you've thought of, of fires happening, it probably won't happen because you've anticipated it. So so any problems you have in a business will be like, wow, I really didn't think it would go there. Right. When you told your mom you were working for this company, what, what did she say? What was her feeling about this business? Yeah, I mean, look... Uh, I think my, my mother didn't understand what tech was. My mom is uh, from West Java, so we come from very small towns. So I think she thought I was an IT or something of the sort. So she didn't really have a lot of comments. But but I think, again, um, for her, uh, I've always been a weird one. So I was a tomboy. I was always like very bratty. I was always rebellious. I always did things that girls weren't meant to do, right? I wanted a BMX bike instead of a pretty pink bike. So she was kind of like, all right, she's a weird one. Just go for it. So she was very, very supportive. BMXs are the coolest bikes though. So completely understand that. I think, um, I guess part of what I'm asking as well is, is did you have a strong support network around you to, to make this leap? Um, how, how did it work? I mean, I know myself, businesses I've had, I think they've only been successful because of the people around me that have kind of let me go and work crazy hours for like a year without seeing them, for example, you know, like having that right support network. Did, did you did you build that around you? Did you have that around you? That's definitely the case. Uh, for me, I had a really understanding husband. Um, a lot of my friends who are women as well, um, a lot of them are stay-at-home moms, so I was a little bit different than, than the rest of them. And, you know, usually... It's the the husbands who go out to work and I'm expected to stay at home. He understood that, you know, I have a lot of different passions and I really want to go out there and make a difference. And he was extremely, extremely supportive, as well as my close friends. They understood that, you know, for the first year or two of Zendit, um, I was missing. I was like, I've, it was as if I fallen from the edge of the earth because, you know, when when your company is growing that fast, there, there are a lot of Buyers need to fight. Uh, you need to keep up with that growth, and you really have to focus on growing the company. And so, I think definitely that support structure is really important. People who understand, uh, who who leave you to to kind of explore what you want to do, who will be supportive when you're having a hard time, who listen when you have a hard time, and who let you be, who let you achieve your dreams. I think it's extremely extremely important and can be the difference between success and failure. Like when people say that they're self-made, I always think about all the people that must have helped them get there. You know, there's no self-made really, and uh, and I think it's 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 it, it further proof. I think having the right support network, you, you my mind, your further proof. Having the right support network means we can achieve anything. But without that support network, it's a lot harder. It's still achievable, but of course, having that partner that understands you're going to be working late, you're going to be working weekends to make the business initially work, and they get it. Um, that's that's uh, that's a special uh, relationship when that when it's like that. Do you, did you know straight off that this business was working? I mean, did you feel at the beginning it was a slam dunk? How, how what was the emotional process of the business? 
Did we think it was going to be a slam dunk? Definitely not. You know, when I joined, actually, we did a race. Um, Moses and I, we both had our hypothesis of what would work, uh, products that, that we could roll out in the market. Uh, so we ran this experiment in parallel. Um, unfortunately, at the time, I failed. So I my my product was to basically Shopify Lite for SMEs, for small business owners. And Moses' product was the payment gateway, as you see it today, or, or at some part of the product you see today. And we ran that in parallel for three months. Uh, we had to kill the business that I, I was running or the experiment. Um, and then we continued on and, and focused all, you know, all hands on the payment gateway. Uh, and that ended up being success. But obviously, uh, along the way, there have been many, many challenges, many times where we thought, this is it. We're not going to make it. But somehow, through sheer hard work and, and just focus, we've been able to drive Zendit to be where it is today. Very interesting insight there too. Again, don't want my audience to miss it. I feel like you had a hypothesis around two potential business models and you ran both by dividing and conquering and then won one out. So you kind of hedged your bet a little bit there. It's quite a clever way to build a company, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a startup way, right? To, to have a hypothesis, to test it really quickly, to roll things out in the market really quickly, to verify if there is interest, and then to be ruthless, to say, this is not going to work out. Let's work on the next thing. Uh, I think it's something really great for people to learn. I mean, the big thing I learned from that very first product that I made was that, you know, the way we did it, it wasn't exactly fantastic. We, we threw in a lot of resources. We built something that was too complex. Uh, we didn't listen to what the customers were were, were demanding, uh, the feedback that, that were given, and that, that ended up not being success. Uh, whereas the payment side, the payment gateway, um, we, we, we understood what customers wanted. We built MVP, we built something very simple, and we iterated often. So I'm a big, big believer in the, that way of doing things. And I think it's applicable to different kinds of businesses, not just tech industry. Um, it's all about building what your customers want. It's about iterating quickly. It's about rolling out things in its simplest form so that you can get that feedback extremely, extremely quickly from your customer. It is an interesting point, though, because I think sometimes when people hear advice about starting a business, they'll say, focus on one product and make it work. It does sound like at the beginning you divided your resources into two to work on these two different products. What, 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 I guess my first question is, um, is that a good way to go? And second is, when did you know to kill it? Was it just obvious because no one, no one was using the second product you built? Or how did you know to kill it? That's quite a brave thing to kill something you spent a bit of time on. Yeah, so I think the longer part of the story is this. When we first started out, we, was at, we were actually, um, we started as a, a, a Bitcoin app. Um, so we were doing remit, uh, sorry, not but we were doing remittance um, uh, through cryptocurrency uh, at the time with Bitcoin. That didn't quite work out. The growth, uh, the numbers weren't there at all. There was no uptick. Obviously, it was 2015, um, and that was just way too early uh, for cryptocurrency. Then we had to pivot to something else. When we did pivot, that was when we decided to run two experiments because, uh, you know, we were lost. The growth numbers weren't there. What do we do now? So we decided to run two hypotheses. Um, this is probably not what I would recommend when you're just starting out. But if you're stuck and you think your product isn't working out, I definitely recommend um, having these two split, you know, two split, split teams testing out different products and seeing um where you can find product market fit. Uh, our measurement is extremely simple. I say, I talk about the rule of threes all the time, right? 
Um, so 30% month-on-month growth, that's what Y Combinator taught us. So if your product is not growing 30% month-on-month, whatever your metric is, uh, then you should probably face the facts that there may not be product market fit there. Um, in the beginning, it's also about finding customers. So for us, it's find 30 customers who'd use your product, get that feedback. So if you don't have that growth rate and you can't find 30 customers, very, very likely that you don't have the right for product that the market wants or that customers want. The third thing for us is that benchmark of three months. So if you're going to roll out something really quickly, you're going to run it um, and you don't see that growth within three months, uh, it's probably a good sign that things are not working out and it's time to kill that product. So I think that rule of three has been really, really valuable. And that's where we decided that, hey, that SME uh, app, it's not going to work out. Let's kill it now and put our resources elsewhere um, so that we can continue to grow um, and, and build what customers want. You need very strong discipline to follow that rule. I know myself, you know, I built businesses and like three or four months in, I'm like, just another three or four months. Let's just see. You have a sunken cost. You're invested. You have to have. A, you have to be really strong to follow that rule. Right? I mean, three months doesn't sound very long anymore either. No, but look, I think I think that's what you were just saying. A lot of entrepreneurs get fixated on their ideas. They think it's brilliant, and you know they think um, this is something that that customers want or the market wants, and I'm going to stick to it no matter what. So you so you get really really you fall in love with the idea, right? Not not really what customers are asking for. I always say, look. Maybe Steve Jobs can do that, but there aren't very many Steve Jobs out there. So unless you're, you know, in the absence of that absolute brilliance, these frameworks um, can work to to be able to build a really nice, solid um, business. Um, yeah, I think I think a lot of us have to say, hey, uh, maybe we're not quite as amazing as Steve Jobs. But we can build something great anyway. So use that that rule of three framework. Totally. Um, I, I guess the other thing, there's so many things in your history that fascinate me, but um, one of the things a lot of our audience ask about is raising money. Now, I'm just reading, this might be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, but your company's raised 538 million US dollars, just in a Series D recently, 300 million. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, is it is it? It sounds like, of course, a lot of money, which it is. Um, but is it is it easy to raise money? Did you did it just happen naturally in the early days until this point, or, or tell us a little bit about that experience? It's definitely not easy to raise funds. I have to say, um, I mean, uh, it it's a lot of art, it's a lot of science, it's a lot of selling um, that dream to investors and selling, you know, Southeast Asia, selling um, selling the business itself. Um, I think it's definitely been uh, a really challenging journey for us in terms of fundraising. I wouldn't say it's a piece of cake, but we've been very fortunate that that growth, the numbers just speak for itself. Um, So I think we've been extremely, extremely proud in terms of our track record of fundraising. We were the first Indonesian company to to get into YCOM or Y Combinator. Before that, you know, a bunch of our investors would ask like, oh, is Indonesia in Bali? And we'd have to say, um, not quite, but okay, good enough. Um, and, and, and we've been able to pave the way uh, for other companies in Southeast Asia now to be part of YCOM. We were the first Southeast Asian company to be invested in by cell as well. Uh, so again, breaking these, these bamboo ceilings. And that comes with a lot of hard work in improving that track record and also being able to tell the right stories. They'll, uh, they'll excite investors to come into Southeast Asia, right? Um, so definitely 
a lot of hard work, uh, but very, very proud uh, of the results that we've had so far. The process of raising money, it, it, is it about selling the future? Or you, or you mentioned they're selling the, the region, but actually the business itself, do you, um, do you actually have to almost, I, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but like fake it till you make it. I mean, of course, you're doing incredible numbers and built an incredible business. But before that, at the beginning, are you, are you selling a dream that may or may not happen? How, how do people who are listening learn how to raise money? Yeah, I think, look, if you're playing this game uh, of startup life where uh, you want to grow really fast and therefore you need investors money to be able to to pull that growth, um, you definitely have to not only sell your products, not just the dream, but you're selling how big the market is, what the opportunities are, right? You're, you're almost selling, you're selling the region. We're selling Southeast Asia every time we speak to our investors that it's an exciting place to be. It's the next market, right? We say all the time, look, Indonesia, 50% of the population is under 30. Um, it's prime. Everybody's, uh, you know, coming online, 120% phone uh, penetration. So you have to get that excitement because you have to understand for a lot of our investors, for example, we're the first investment in Southeast Asia. Um, so they might not be extremely familiar with the market, but they know that it may be something that they should be excited about. Uh, you'd be surprised, but a lot of people don't even know that Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world, right? We're kind of the dark horse. Um, nobody knows about us, and it's a really exciting place to be. So definitely, if you want to play that startup game, um, you have to be able to sell something big, right? No one's going to go to investors and say, I'm going to build a product for 10,000 people. It has to be, I'm going to build something that hundreds of thousands of people or hundreds of millions of people can use. And that's where the excitement is. There was a time when uh, businesses that invested in businesses in Silicon Valley wouldn't invest unless you were in Silicon Valley. So do you feel that that's changed now? Do people listening that are all over the world, they can get investment? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think um, before Southeast Asia, obviously, there was excitement with China and India. So I think we're lucky that investors are willing to look further out than, than, than the Silicon Valley. Um, I think if you're talking about innovation, where the excitement is, it's going to be Southeast Asia, and especially in payments. Um, in the Western world, everything's very card-based, so I, I think there's not any more excitement there. But if you're talking about a place like Indonesia, Philippines, other parts of Southeast Asia, because we've skipped credit cards for other payment methods altogether, that's where the, all the innovation is. And I think investors are definitely, definitely very excited. And especially, again, by the way, today's market, right? A recession's coming. Um, a lot of investors are going to be a little bit more cautious. Um, growth rates are going to start to taper off in the Western world. Where else are you going to look? It's going to be somewhere like Southeast Asia, um, where there's still a lot of opportunity, uh, digitalization, the tech scene is very early stage. So there's a lot of room for growth still. So I think um, Southeast Asia is definitely the place to be. Now, I know you um, co-founded team, there's four of you. Right. So um, how do you make that dynamic work? Because I know I've got three brothers and we're always arguing. So how do you make sure that you you work as a team and and uh, and, and don't don't have conflict? Yeah, look, we're really uh, we're really uh, fortunate in that uh, we have very different skill sets. Um, so I think we've been very clear from the beginning what areas we focus on and we don't overlap. And we agree when we disagree 
who um, is able to veto or have um, the final decision. So Moses, the CEO, he focuses on investor relations as well as the growth side of things. So um, products as well as um, the growth team, so sales, account management. Um, I focus on the operation side, which is everything from financial operations to you know, the government relationship, compliance side, um, anything and everything that requires, you know, some form of localization and especially in Indonesia. And then Bo and Juan focus on the tech side. So I think we've been very fortunate that we have very, very different skill sets. So we can definitely just focus on our orgs and and uh, grow that part and make sure that, you know, we're doing the best for Zendit. I think I would recommend if you want to do business with someone rather than finding, you know, someone who are your friends or, or um someone you may like in real life. It's about finding complementary skill sets um, so that you can make the business work. Yeah, such an important point you're making there. I think a lot of people um, do work with people that they like, but that doesn't mean you've got complementary skill sets, which is where the problems come in. Again, I've worked with my brother, so I know this. I liked him, but then we worked together. Um, we didn't have complementary skill sets, so it caused a problem. So it's a really, really important insight there. Do you... Um, you know, of course, you've been building this business since 2016. Um, do you, when you look back at the journey, building this incredible company to to this unicorn status, do you feel like there's some lessons you've learned along the way that are worth sharing? Any any anything you would have done differently looking back now? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a lot of lessons for us. Um, I think um, definitely one part is there's no replacement for hard work, right? We we may say we're lucky to be in the right time in the right place, but the harder you the, you work, hopefully the luckier you get. Uh, that's one part, right? Um, in the beginning of, of your startup's life or in the beginning of any um, business that you're starting out, you're going to have to work day and night and nothing beats that hustle, right? Um, we were able, for example, to get some partnerships from bigger names um, because we were always early. We were always the first one in the room. We always over-delivered in whatever um, was being asked. We always delivered extremely, extremely fast. And that's really, really important um, in the early days. Um, another another thing was to have thick skin. Um, I think that was really, really important. Five, six years ago, Moza and I look a lot more baby-faced than today. Um, you know, we had that... Um, we were just brave enough to go uh, to knock on the door of some of the biggest banks and we said, hey, we'll deliver you, you know, one million dollars in transaction volumes a day. And they're like, who are these people? Or who are these kids? Right. Um, but we were able to make it. So I think I think having some of that thick skin when you really believe in what you want to do is is definitely very, very important as well. Um, some learnings, I think, um, if I had to do things over again, would be um, first things first. I think um, Zendit was the first time I ever managed um, anybody, ever built teams. Um, I think um, harnessing powers of other people are extremely important. I think we'd like to think that we can do everything ourselves, but the power of many is a lot, a lot better. But I think I learned a lot about managing people through my time at Zendit. Um, the very first person I hired and I managed, I think I did so badly, I ended up having to fire this person twice when I let the person go. Um, that was a testament to how poor a manager I, I, I was. Uh, but I think now hopefully I've learned a thing or two and I've been able to, you know, kind of be in the stage where I can empower others to, to help send it grow. Um, so, yeah, I think a few lessons, have that grit 
thick skin, empower your people, um, and hopefully that business will grow, you know, to a rocket ship. I love the um, the humbleness of that answer as well. The way you can accept that you you didn't know what you were doing at first, and, and I'm sure that if that person who you had to let go is listening, they'll be somewhat happy to hear that it it wasn't them; it was you. <laughs> No, no. Yeah. I think definitely managing people is hard. And, um, there's a lot of learnings from, from all that experience in the past. And, um, yeah, hopefully if the person's listening, um, at least they taught me something, a thing or two, uh, about being a manager. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very, um, very nice to hear, frankly, someone that's as successful as you, uh, sharing that you had to learn, uh, the hard way, these things. And I've been through it myself too. When I first hire people, you can't tell them that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, so, so they don't know. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, it, it resonates. And I think it's, uh, it's an interesting process that we all go through as we try to learn things on the go. Um, and um, yeah, the other thing I, I, you mentioned it, but I just want to go a little bit deeper. You, you mentioned there you know, knocking on the doors of the big banks. So what I noticed about when I read about what you've done is like the quality of the investors, the, the big names you've got on board, the brands that you work with, you know, all, all of them are big names. How did you get these big uh, partners like Grab, for example, um, for anyone um, living in, in Southeast Asia, they'll know just how big Grab is. Maybe for my listeners in the US or America, you won't know, but it's, it's, it's bigger than Uber. Um, but, you know, how did you get brands like them on board? What was the um, what was the hook? Yeah, for us, uh, the first things first is about building what customers want. And I think that sounds extremely simple. Uh, but again, a lot of us don't end up doing that. We end up getting wedded to the idea of what we think customers want. We don't ask that question. Uh, so we, we are not providing things that are actually useful for them. Uh, in terms of that hook, again, a lot of it was about um, saying, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll build what you want. We'll do this quickly. We'll do it with speed. Um, we'll work with you to be able to provide the best payment experience in market. Uh, and, and that, I think, is uh, something extremely valuable for, for an entrepreneur, right? Be, uh, being to, able to deliver fast, being able to build what your customers want um, with a lot of agility. I think it's super duper important um, in every stage uh, of your company's life. Again, another great point. I think in sales, people think the art of sales is, you know, presenting something you've got for sale in a really nice way. But it's not, is it? The, the art of sales is listening to your customer and what they need and seeing if you can satisfy their need. Right. It's uh, it's so overlooked. It's so obvious, isn't it, when we discuss it. But I, I feel like a lot of people listening might be um, wondering why their business isn't working because they're selling what they've got instead of listening to what their customers need. But it also, I think one of the problems is scale. If you go talk to Grab and they say, yes, oh, great, we want this, that, and the other, and you have to spend all your time and money building what they want, but it's not your business plan, that's, that's I think, where people don't quite know how to handle it. How, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so I think it's about prioritization, right, uh, in terms of you're going to be pulled left, right, and center. You have to think about, okay, is what I'm building for one customer, is it going to be very likely that some other customers are going to want that too? Obviously, you don't want to do everything customized and then you're building 20,000 different products. Um, so I think it's about validating. That's why, um, as I said before, we want to find that 30 customers, 30 customers who use that same product and who love it so much um, so that you could continue to expand on that. I think that's definitely very important in the early days. Um, obviously, for us, we understand that if we can build something uh, for Grab, uh, it's very, very likely that other bigger players will want that too. 
Uh, but when you're starting out, obviously, when you're a lot smaller and, and maybe you're rather than the grabs of the world, you're trying to get those smaller customers. Again, it's extremely, extremely important to be able to find what, you know, your first 30 customers want and to get that feedback. And by the way, it's super easy now, right? Especially if you want to develop something in tech, there are a lot of ways to get feedback from customers. You don't always have to roll out your product first. You can make prototypes. Uh, you know, you can, you can find the uh, apps that can actually create a, a mock apps for your customers. Uh, whatever business you're in, there must be ways to be able to validate with customers really, really early before you've built something for months and months, wasted effort, and you're not building what your customers want. Is there a way you feel that's best for people to get feedback from their customer? Is it literally just sit in front of them and ask them? Or is there, is there a, a technical way to do it that you've noticed that really works? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the products. Um, I think there are ways, uh, we're very scientific about it. Uh, sometimes we'll A-B test uh, a product. Sometimes we'll design mock products and then we'll show it to the customer and they can give us feedback as to what they want. Um, so they'll get feedback from everything from what buttons or what kinds of APIs, what kind of payment flows that, that, that um, they want. But I think the key lesson here is speak to your customers often. And you may think, hey, nobody wants to talk to me, but surely you can find you know, 30 people who can give you that feedback. Um, start with one or two, and I'm sure others will follow. Uh, and make sure you're asking the right question and make sure you're asking it systematically, right? It's not just about asking random questions to people, but craft your questionnaire, craft what it is you wanna know, uh, build very, very specific parts of your product first and get that feedback and then continue to iterate and, and develop that product. Uh, yeah, whatever whatever business you're in. The um the other thing I noticed about I guess the way you're building out the business is you've recently made some investments. Tell us a little bit about maybe for people listening if they like to get an investment. How 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 do you decide uh what investments to make and what what's the strategy when it comes to investing in a business? Yeah, definitely. For us, um, our investors uh, investments are done uh, when we think that we can have and I don't like that buzzword synergy, but when we can. Uh, really combine the business and do something great together. So recently we've made an investment um, in a local bank in Indonesia. That's a, a smaller bank um, in market. And we did that because we wanted to develop products together. And this particular bank has been really fantastic in being able to build uh, the right products with us. Um, so we thought that, um, you know, uh, that investment will get us to a better cooperative uh, cooperation uh, together with this particular bank. So that's one part. Um, the second investment we did was in another payment player in the Philippines. We are present in the Philippines, um, but obviously um, this particular company we invested in have been there much longer. So they already have all the partnerships, um, a lot of the products that might be required. So I think, again, it was a no-brainer to do that. It showed that we're committed to the market and we're committed to expanding our product suite to, to um, serve our customers. Um, so that strategy really is about what can we do together? What else can we build together for our customers? Uh, and that's why um, we've invested in these companies. And and when you're looking in the future for businesses to invest in, is there... So you mentioned there, which is interesting. So you see a company that you can, you, and I, I hate the word synergy too, but you, you, uh, you see uh, you, you similar business model, uh, but they're doing it in a market that you want to be bigger in. So 
instead of spending years building it on your own, you you join forces basically, right? So, um, so is is that something you think is is a growth strategy people should think about? Like if they're listening and maybe they're thinking, well, I've got a business in the UK, but maybe I want to grow in the US. You you think that's the right way to grow? Maybe buy in or partner up with an existing potential competitor? I think definitely, but it also depends on the stage of the business that you're at. Obviously, if you're still building your product, you're still finding product market fit, uh, that's probably not the right time to do that. But if you've been able to you know, prove that this is uh, your product is in demand and you want to be able to scale up a little bit faster, that may be the way to go. Um, I think still, though, at the end of the day, in order to succeed, you have to focus on your own products. Partnerships are good, but don't forget um, that you should be building your own products that customers want. Uh, but again, if you want to go to market a little bit faster, you want you might want to do those cooperations. I, I think, for example, in fintech, there's sometimes a misconception that we want to kill banks, for example. Uh, in a place like Southeast Asia, I don't think that works. You want to actually uh, win together. You want to be part of the ecosystem. Uh, you want to have a win-win solution where your partners grow and you grow as well. Uh, if you think about it, the difference between banks and us is we understand other t- startups because we're a tech companies, but banks may have all that infrastructure already. So it's a no brainer. We're not stealing their market. We're expanding on it by enabling their products to be used uh, by other tech companies. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's another great point. Actually, um, I, I built uh, one of Asia's first corporate accelerator programs. We did a partnership with DBS Bank and DBS Bank committed to helping fintech businesses. And initially people were like, well, fintech companies are trying to kill the banks. And and that wasn't the case, you know, and vice versa. Banks actually want innovation and they want to they want to um, move fast and break things as the saying goes. And I think I think it's a really interesting point to make sure people aren't trapped in a in a system where they think that these institutions are the enemy there's a lot of power in in taking, I guess, your innovation and your nimbleness and your um, your unique position in the market and working with a, a traditional institution that brings a different thing to the table, right? I mean, it's a, it's a really, it, but you've got to be quite, um, what's the word, open-minded to see it that way, right? I'm sure the conversation with the bank was never easy. And especially if you're investing, it's not easy because there is a different mindset, but it can pay big dividends, right? Definitely so. Um, and yeah, I think it's been a great cooperation so far. We've both worked um, through our strengths and hopefully we'll be able to roll out uh, more great products for our customers soon. Do you think um, going forward, I, this might sound like a technical question, but a lot of people ask us this. So I love, I love to ask founders um, this question, um, but a lot of people want to they come up with a, a company name and they launch and then they realize it's trademarked or um in the market they want to go into, someone else already has the name. Is this something you've experienced? How, how did you make sure? I'm sure when you launched, there must have been a load of people copying your name and trademarking in other markets. It's, it's just a technical thing, but have you, have you managed to overcome that problem? I mean, um, in the very beginning, we chose the name Zendit with an X because that was cheaper for our domain name. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was our story there. Uh, but I think, look, uh, we're a little bit different, right? We're a B2B business. Um, our branding is not quite, um, you know, as crucial as a B2C uh, where consumers really want that big brand that, that people know and understand. A lot of us, if you, if you go to Indonesia or Philippines, uh, they may have never have heard of Zendit because we power their payments, we built the infrastructure, uh, but no one ever sees us. Um, but certainly, I think um, for a consumer-focused brand, 
uh, names are very important. Branding is very important. You want to be top of mind. You want to pre- represent a certain image. And um, yeah, I think I think think about it in the beginning. Go go do some research. Um, I think everything is publicly available now, right, in terms of trademarks. So it shouldn't be a big struggle for you. Another good point you're making there, though, within the point about trademarking, which is business strategy. A lot of people want B two C businesses. But building a B2B business is really quite powerful. You've got over 3,000 customers. That's quite a hard thing to compete with once you've got those customers, right? Whereas consumers can be uh, difficult to manage from that point of view. They can come and go quite easily, right? So that was part of the strategy from day one, of course, I'm assuming. Um, you, you ever talk about the B2C model? Or is that something? Because a lot of businesses do have both, right? I mean, LinkedIn, for example, actually has both. I definitely think we our DNA is very B2B. I think having a business-to-business um, sort of startup and a B2C startup is extremely, extremely different. For us, it's about providing highly technical products that are going to be usable by businesses in order to grow their business, right? It's infrastructure, so it has to be reliable. Um, it has to be um, extremely technical to, to provide for what customers want. Um, versus a B2C, I think I think that ballgame is extremely different. Some A lot of it is about building your branding, building a community. Um, yeah, ex- again, working with, with consumers that uh, may be very fickle. Um, so finding that product market fit might be different. Uh, maybe you have to play the, the discount or cashback game. Um, I think, again, it's an extremely different way to run your business. We're, we're very used to, to going really deep, building things that are very secure, building reliable products, um, very technical again. So, um, I don't think for us um, we're going to be well placed to be a B2C player. I think if I had to do over again, I think I we would still go back to B2B uh, because it's been extremely fun. It's been great to be able to build cool products that that customers um, are able to use and, and, again, provide for their own consumers. I think it's fantastic. I think B2B requires quite a different skill, like you say, but also selling, selling to businesses is is not an easy process right you need good cash flow um and it takes time oh definitely i think selling to bigger players especially um there's a lot of process to be done um a lot of going back and forth um a lot of understanding of the technicalities um it's definitely extremely different than how you'd approach um a b2c business uh, uh but again i think that ability to build um some really cool infrastructure is very exciting for us and that's definitely where we're we should be i'm just looking at the volume of traffic like you said you've got three thousand customers but like 15 billions worth 15 billions worth of transactions um and just crazy numbers that you're doing through your platform and i guess that as you say because you've done a b2b strategy your customers have the customers to give you the volume so you've only had to do three thousand sales which is huge amount of work but but once you've done that your customers have customers and that creates the transaction volume and um, i probably said the amount of transactions wrong there which is it's basically the volume of transactions jumped recently from 6.5 billion to 15 billion so that's in in that's crazy that's crazy growth because that, that's the other thing i wanted to ask you was like the, the, the growth side i mean you start off as a, as a let's say a small company and then you you, you become this big billion dollar company and and what as a as an individual how's that been for you is it is it uh is it hard to 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 adjust to the bigger business or is it something that's just naturally come to you i think definitely it's been a big challenge they say that when startups grow from you know 50 to 100 100 to 500 
500 to 1,000 people, uh, you become a whole different company. So I think um, it's been challenging from many different ways. Um, from uh, Firstly, from, from having to suddenly go from doing everything yourself uh, to having to manage people. Um, secondly, um, you're not just managing people, but now you're starting to hire a lot more professionals who may be experts in what they do, who are who are more of an expert than you. I think that's been extremely tough as well. Um, and then on top of it all, right now, Zendit is no longer just a one country player. We've now gone regional, so we're in more than one market. Again, a very, very big challenge. And sometimes, actually, um, the weird part of it all is this: a lot of this happened through the pandemic. So most of the time, I'm just sitting here in my chair. So you're saying um, how how the transaction volumes have grown and everything else. But the past two years, I've just been sitting here um, doing a lot of calls through Google Meet. So I think... Um, it's been very mind-boggling. It's a great roller coaster ride, and oftentimes I think it hasn't hit me yet. I'm just kind of sitting here trying to get the company to continue to run. Really, has it surprised you how successful the business has been? In a sense, yes, but but also we've worked extremely, extremely hard to get here. It wasn't an easy journey. There was there was a lot to do with the yeah, finding that more uh, product market fit. There was a lot in, in navigating um, markets like Indonesia and Philippines. Um, um, there was a lot of you know how do we build the right products for customers? How do we sell these right products? How do we sure that it keeps working? How do we sure think? Uh, how how can we make sure things don't break? Um, because I, I think the analogy of building a startup, it, it's like building a boat, uh, driving a speedboat while you're building it at the same time. I think that's a very true analogy. Um, so you, you're just constantly trying to keep up with that growth, um, which is a good problem to have, but but problems nevertheless. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. I want to thank you for your time. I've got one last question before we, we let you get back to running uh, your incredible business. Um, if you went back to your younger self and gave some advice, what would it be? Yeah, I think um, for me, it would be uh, be less afraid, be more confident in yourself, um, you know, dive into these new things and, and things will be okay. I think, I think uh, you know, definitely when I was younger, uh, because I didn't have that background in terms of, you know, I didn't study finance and then I didn't you know, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm not coming from a tech background in building a tech company. Uh, so there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of, you know, not very confident moments in, in, in life. I think if I were to look back, I would say, you know, things are going to be OK um, as long as you've got the right framework, as long as you keep going and do the hard work, um, be confident and, and be bold and go for it. You are an inspiration and it's amazing what you've achieved through your hard work and your knowledge is mind-blowing. I'm, I'm personally going to listen back to this podcast and, and, uh, and, and learn again. So thank you for taking the time again to share. Really amazing. And thank you for, uh, for being yeah, that inspiration to us all. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you found today's podcast both inspiring and useful. And if you need more help, visit PurposefulProject.com where all the resources to help you start and grow a business are free. 